Thank you, Megan, and greetings, everyone. It's a privilege to share Easter with you. It's a joy, I must say to you, to be here within these walls and be able to lift my hands in worship and sing along with the the band as they lead. And I want you to know that we as a staff are working hard to make that a possibility and reality for all of us soon. And so you'll hear more about that in the days ahead. But I want to thank you for worshiping with us online for this entire last year and ask that you'll take take a moment now and pray with me as we look at what God has to say to us through this vital text in Luke chapter 24. Father, I'd like to thank you that as we gather scattered, we gather as one people because what unites us is our belief that the course of history has been changed by virtue of your life, your death, your resurrection in Christ. I pray that now you just speak to us from the text so that our hearts can be aligned with yours in order that we might be in this world people of hope, representing your heart with increasing accuracy as we follow you and declare the good news, the good news of your infinite love, your infinite power, uh, and the transformation awaits us and the world as we follow you. Toward that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll just begin by naming this phrase, change of heart. We all have said it at various times. We've used it. It's a phrase intended to convey more than just a superficial transformation has occurred in a person. If there's been infidelity in a marriage, you don't want a relationship to continue with zero trust. Uh, You want a change of heart. If there's voter rights legislation, you don't want people just to follow the letter of the law. You want a change of heart. You want people to see each voter as a person having rights. And uh, when my wife and I get into arguments, sometimes she'll just throw her, her, her arms up in frustration and say this to me, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. And I'll say to her, and what you do is not the important thing. I want your heart to be the same as my heart on this issue. And she will say the same thing to me at times because ultimately what matters is the heart. This kind of language makes sense because Jesus long ago responded to a debate about clean and unclean food by saying that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out. And this is literally what Jesus said. He said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. It all starts in the heart. And the reason that kind of thing comes out of the heart is because the heart is, as we'll see in a moment, fundamentally flawed. One of the things I enjoy doing as a pastor, and I do this sometimes on the podcast that I have called Towards Wholeness, I'll ask people the question, if you could change one thing in the world, what would you change? And all kinds of issues come up. It's about racism. It's about climate change. It's about economic disparity. It's about sexism. It's about healthcare. It's about homelessness. It's about nationalism. I would argue that the foundational issue that underpins all of those issues is this issue All of us need a new heart, and we need to learn how to live out from the abundance of that new heart rather than the old heart. That's our theme today. And so we look in this time in Luke 24 at this question. Uh, Why do we need a new heart, number one? How do we get a new heart, number two? It's those two things that we'll look at. And to look at this thing, I want to begin by setting a context. And the context is this, that people are in a state of dismay as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on what is called famously the Emmaus Road. There's two men walking, and I pick up the story in uh, these verses. In Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 18, listen as I read. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered Jesus, who had come up and was walking alongside them, though they didn't recognize him. 
And Cleopas says to Jesus, hey, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And then Jesus says to them, what things? And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought it would be this way, but now he's arrested, he's tried, he's executed, he's buried, he's dead. They can't find the body. We thought it'd be like this. Instead, it's like this shattered expectations. Boy, does that describe this last year for anyone in the room? We thought we'd be shut down three weeks tops. It's a year. We thought we'd be able to have discussions based on science and facts, not superstition and conspiracy theories. We thought we'd be healthy this year. I have numerous friends who've been diagnosed with cancer during COVID. Numerous friends who've lost family members or friends to COVID. We thought our marriage was rock solid. Then we had to spend all day together for a year. And now we realize we don't like each other. We thought, that's not my marriage, by the way. That's just a thing. Upset expectations. We thought the Christianity of our childhood was real Christianity. But lately, we've been seeing the cracks in the faith of our childhood, whether because of sexism or racism or nationalism or or answers that now ring hollow in the face of profound questions is not working anymore. And so those two disciples were facing this profound deconstruction. We thought it would be this way and it isn't. And many of us have faced the same thing in the past year. And that's why this text is so valuable. So what Jesus does is he takes our deconstruction and he ties it to, first of all, our need for a new heart. And then he shows us how we get a new heart. Our need for a new heart is revealed as Jesus addresses the problem. And the problem is very simple. They are slow of heart, says Jesus, to believe all. Slow of heart to believe all. Look at verses 25 and 26 of Luke 24. After the disciples have poured their heart out to Jesus regarding the problems of Jesus' death, not knowing that they're speaking to Jesus, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Watch this. It's not that they didn't believe anything that the prophets had spoken. The key word to the entire passage is this. They didn't believe all. They believed a lot of things. They believed in God. They believed that God had given them a land. They believed that they were chosen by God. They believed that they were loved by God. They believed they were destined to prominence among nations. They believed God's law. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken. And by selectively choosing what they would believe, they built a God in their own image in at least two ways. And the first way is they built a God who wins by domination. When they say, we thought that Jesus was going to redeem Israel, here's what they're saying. We thought that Jesus would win by domination because domination is how winning happens. They didn't understand that God's ways are not domination, but suffering servanthood. So the part about a suffering Messiah in the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah made no sense to them because good leaders don't suffer, they dominate. When Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it was a sign that he came for peace, not war. And they didn't understand that because how would Israel be delivered from Rome without a violent overthrow of Rome? Because you only win by violence. 
So when Jesus was arrested, the natural thing to do was to fight back. So Peter pulls out his sword and starts whacking away. And Jesus says, put away your sword. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And in so doing, points out the reality that God's kingdom and God's ways and hence God's people are to be characterized by peace, not war, by violence, not domination, excuse me, by suffering, not domination, because by absorbing violence through nonviolent resistance, oppression is destroyed. Just ask MLK, ask Sophie Scholl, ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer, ask Jesus. So they had built a God who they believed would win by domination, and their Messiah is hanging on a cross. It makes no sense. Second, when they say, we had thought it was he who would redeem Israel, they didn't understand what what God had for them as a nation was the privilege of shining as a light so that all nations and all people would be drawn to intimacy with God. And by all people... God means to include, as we will see, every tribe, every nation, every race, every skin color. God means to include widows, orphans, immigrants, refugees, the poor, uh, the homeless. They didn't understand the notion that everyone would have a legitimate, profound, dignifying place at God's table because they lived in a world of hierarchy and exclusion rather than servanthood and inclusion. And they applied that paradigm to the kingdom of God. Who's in? Who's out? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Who's saved? Who's lost? That's why religious people were confounded by Jesus, because he had friendship with people considered to be on the outside. The domination paradigm and the exclusion paradigm are both wrong But they arrived at those conclusions, these two on the road to Emmaus, not because they'd thrown their Bible away, but because they read their Bible selectively. Uh, They were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Selectively reading a text that's intended to shape our understanding of God's character and the human condition is a very bad thing to do. But it's said all the time, and the reason is, we have a hard problem. Jeremiah 17 says, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. In other words, it's in us. It's in all of us to create gods in our image. Gods that reinforce what we already believe or what we want to believe. And then, of course, when the true God shows up, that creates a dissonance because we already believe God to be this over here, and now... We don't understand Jesus hanging on a cross in this case. And so we can create capitalist free market gods. We can create pro-slavery gods. We can uh, create gods favoring the domination system. We can create gods favoring exclusion. We can create gods favoring sexism. We can uh, create gods favoring a particular nation. We can create such gods. We do create such gods. And hear me, we don't throw away our Bibles when we create such gods. We read our Bibles selectively rather than completely. (laughs) We read them as guardians of what we want to believe rather than as humble children who are teachable and ready to receive what we need to believe. We need to read them to build a case for our system rather than having an openness to our system being blown up. That's why Jesus was crucified. He didn't fit 
the religious establishment's understanding of the kingdom of God. And so the results of this is if I, if I fail to believe all that is revealed, I end up with a distorted Christianity. And many people today who are rejecting uh, the church are not rejecting the real Jesus. They're rejecting the distorted images that we have created because of our failure to believe all. <laughs> Let me give you an example. The church I grew up in fought for the inerrancy of the scripture, defended the inspiration of the Bible, offered endless proofs for the historicity of the resurrection, defended the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the reason that he died on the cross, argued about when Christians would be raptured, argued about whether you could lose your salvation, but the entire time, my entire childhood, in the church in which I grew up, I heard jokes about Mexican-Americans. And it was very clear in our church that uh, there was to be no interracial dating, let alone interracial marriage, and there were family fights over that, and I participated in family arguments over interracial marriage, and uh, in one case, the parents refused to go to the wedding of their son because he married across a racial line. Uh, And and, uh, at the same time, not a word from the pulpit about race, not a word. Don't mishear me. The point of this little talk is not racism. It's selectively reading the scripture because we do this not just with race, we do it with all kinds of things. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. That was a case of slow of heart to believe all that this prophets have said. And, and so my hope on this Easter is that the risen Jesus will keep saving me as these two guys on the road to Emmaus were saved, saving me from the lesser gods of my own making by blowing up my paradigms in order that I might look more and more and more and more like Christ. And this will require of me ongoing repentance, hear me, until my last breaths. And if, if you're done growing, then... I'm sorry, (laughs) because somehow your God is too small, to quote J.B. Phillips, a profound pastor who translated the Bible. Jesus needs to keep blowing up our paradigms, as happened on the road to Emmaus, because um, in their heart, their heart problem was they created a God that they wanted to believe in by selectively reading the text. So what's the solution to this hard problem? The solution is I need the whole truth and I need a change of heart. And the whole truth and a change of heart will come from two places, as we'll see here in these last moments that we have together. They'll come from the text and they'll come from an encounter with Jesus. First of all, from the text, it says in verse 26 and 27 that Jesus says to these two guys, It was necessary that Christ should suffer these things in order to enter glory. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures that were concerning himself. In other words, beginning with Moses, like that's the book of Genesis and going through all the way through the Old Testament, Jesus pointed out scriptures regarding the nature of who Messiah would be 
and address the necessity that Messiah must suffer. So here's the revelation that glory is linked to suffering. Jesus would show this to the folks on the road by showing them what the Bible has to say about suffering and particularly that the Messiah would need to suffer. And of course, one of the classic examples of this is in Isaiah 53, if you know your Bible, which let me just read this little passage for you. Speaking of the Messiah, here's a prophecy. This is what the king of the world must do. He was despised, forsaken a man of, of men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Uh, he was despised, we didn't esteem him. He's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. We ourselves esteemed him stricken. In other words, we looked at him and said, They are destroying his body, smitten of God, afflicted, pierced through, crushed. That's the king of the world. (laughs) By his wounds and scars and chastening and crushing, we are healed. In other words, here's Jesus to these two guys. Hey, you guys, winning doesn't come through the domination model. It comes from laying down one's life. Sophie Scholl was executed as a threat to Hitler's Reich because she distributed literature throughout uh, most of Bavaria advocating that Germans work actively to lose the war. She writes of her nonviolent resistance movement against Nazi Germany and a dream she had about it, and she says that in her dream, we read this from her journal, she says, it was a sunny day and I was carrying a child in a white dress to be christened. The path to the church led up a steep slope but I held the child in my arms firmly and without faltering, and then suddenly my footing gave way, and I put the child down before plunging into the abyss. The child was saved, though I died. And this is what she said. The child was my calling to call Germany to follow Christ in resisting Hitler. That was the child. And that child will live even if I die. Wow. She's saying that she's willing to pour out her life in service to the truth and justice and mercy, knowing she'll win even if she dies because she wins not through domination and bombs, but through sacrificial service and suffering. Jesus so reminds the folks on Emmaus Road that suffering is tied to glory. Hey, Joseph was in prison for 25 years and God used that to save Israel from a famine. Isaiah was sawn in two and God used his words to preserve a remnant committed to God's vision of a kingdom of inclusion. Jeremiah was in prison and unjustly accused, but God used his words to awaken hearts and lead to repentance. Glory and suffering are one piece of cloth. And you cannot be a display of God's glory if your value system is to avoid suffering. You can't. If if your paradigm is avoid suffering and loss, you will live small. So Christ reveals himself on the road to Emmaus as the ultimate expression of God's glory and seen as all the more glorious because of betrayal, abandonment, unjust execution. His was life out from death and shows us that we can be, as Hebrews 2 says, we can be freed from the fear of death that leads to slavery. Because if I'm freed from the fear of death, I live large. Again, to quote once more from Sophie Scholl, there's this reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the bad guys won't find you, but it's all an illusion because they die, you die, we all die. 
We're going to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. A lit candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch. I choose my own way to burn, and it will be the way of courage and sacrifice toward freedom. Wow. Who says that? People yoked with Christ. Man, the domination model needs to die. And then Jesus would have addressed the exclusionist model as well, that it was like Israel at the expense of everyone else. He would have addressed the exclusionist model as well, because if you begin with with, with, uh, Moses and you go through the entire Old Testament, you see, oh yeah, the family of God, God's chosen, God's favored people. By the way, that included Rahab, the prostitute from uh, Jericho, a Gentile. Ruth the Moabite, a Gentile. He'd show how in Isaiah 2, there's the laying down of all weapons from all nations and all nations coming together in submission to the authority of Messiah, joining hands and turning their weapons into tools of agriculture and finding a unity our world has never been able to achieve because we live in a world based on domination and exclusion and that will never carry the day ever. That's why Easter matters. That's why Christianity matters because no other system can do it. All this revelation from Jesus is setting the table for them to understand that what they thought was the kingdom of God was not the kingdom of God at all, but simply a domination and exclusion system baptized in a little selective Bible teaching. So Jesus rocks their world through the text so that they can move. And then second, he rocks their world by their encounter with him. So he teaches them as they're walking. It's about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And then when they get to Emmaus, they invite him to stay uh, for supper. And they still don't recognize him. I mean, I love this. Here's Jesus. He shows up to people who have lost all faith. And in their doubt, in their despair, in their belief, unbelief, in their partial understanding, he's like this, I am with you. That's Jesus. And then he breaks bread with them, and then they recognize him, and then as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. Another story for another day. But until he broke bread, that Bible study was still theory and theology. But when he blessed the food, the way they'd seen him bless the food when they followed him as his disciples, they knew this is the same one. He is inclusion and displaces the exclusion model. He is the suffering servant and displaces the domination model. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel regarding the heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says there, uh, listen, I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'll give you a new spirit. They'll receive a new spirit 50 days from now at Pentecost. But in this moment, an entirely different paradigm is part of what's giving them a new heart. We thought the gospel was this. It didn't work. We received new revelation from old text. We encountered Jesus. As a result, our lives will never be the same. Here's the takeaway. Easter is the annual reminder that what we need is not necessarily just more you know, Bible study or more programs or you know, more offerings or more action 
What we need before anything else, what we need foundationally, fundamentally, is we need the heart that God gives us to reign in our lives. And a change of heart isn't just needed, friends. It's available because it's Christ's risen heart that is now able to change your world utterly, (laughs) in every way to change your world. Which means not just a new vision, a vision of inclusion, not exclusion, a vision of suffering service and unconditional love and sacrifice, not domination. It's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to have the capacity to fulfill the vision. But if, like, I have the heart of the risen Jesus in me, I can say with Paul, now it's Christ who lives in me. It's his strength, not mine. His joy, not mine. His wisdom, not mine. Why? Because it's his heart, not mine. Let's just close this way. Who of you listening knows that you want that heart because that's what you need? If you know you need that heart, it's this simple. You pray, Jesus, I want your heart to reign in and through my life. Just pray that right now and let us know in the messaging and we will respond and follow up. And for the rest of us who have a new heart, what's up? Is that heart continuing to transform us so that the old gods die? Above all else, it says in Proverbs 4.17, guard your heart for from it will flow your life. Whose heart is running the show? May it be Christ's resurrected life, his heart guiding us to a life of inclusion and suffering service and joyful love and sacrifice to the glory of the risen Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together.